honored to be invited to share with you tonight. And, and so tonight we're going to talk about conversations with a post-everything world. And I'll define that in a moment. But several months ago, my children's pastor, Kim Penny, and I were making a biblical case to the parents in our church for the fact that God had given them the responsibility to be the primary spiritual educators, that we are not to, to give this this important challenge away to a church or a Sunday school or a youth pastor, but that we are the ones who are supposed to impart spiritual uh, awareness and the life of Christ, the teaching of the Word of God into our children. And during that conversation, we identified that studies are showing us some very dramatic statistics. And one of them is that of kids who are involved in high school programs in churches just like ours, just like this one, that 70% of them will leave the church within two years of graduating high school. And that's not just the kids who didn't come. That's the kids who were engaged and involved in our churches. Now, about half of those will come back during the course of their lifetime. But how many of you think that that's just way too many that we're losing? That's just not an acceptable thing. And so... Uh, And not only parents, but I think many of us as Christians are feeling challenged these days to defend and extend our faith, not only to our families, but into our community, to make a case for Christ and to to, uh, tell people about the beauty and the power of a relationship with him. I used to hear my parents remark, what is this world coming to? How many of you have caught yourself asking that question a lot lately? Uh, I certainly have. And it's a very good question and one that we've probably been all asking together a lot lately, especially as the church. Well, before we get into what the post-world is, let me just set the stage a little bit. Uh, In generations ago, we we lived in what was called the pre-modern world in which God was a primary authority. People accepted that, that the Bible was, was true, that that was a good and healthy way to live. And even though not everybody in our culture would necessarily say that I have accepted Christ as my personal Savior, they at least didn't debate that if you lived your life in a biblical way, you would be a person of good character, of good morality, a person who would be trustworthy. And so God's existence and revelation was widely accepted uh, And then we moved into a a kind of a different generation, a different time. And that's been dubbed the modern era. When science began to dominate people's thinking, the source of truth and reality was defined by what the scientists said. This was a time of of real hope. And following the world wars, as technology was was growing, inventions were happening, and and, and society was growing more and more wealthy, economies were, were coming to life again, and there was widespread prosperity. People had a great hope that, well, maybe the hope wasn't in these God things, but, but maybe we'd be able to build societies that would be kind of Christian-like. And, so, and so, uh, so people began to have this great hope that we together, we could do this. And that's been dubbed the modern era. And unfortunately, the Bible and spiritual truth and the morality that goes with the scriptures, the, what was right and wrong, was arbitrarily demoted into a private place. It was no longer a part of the public discussion. It was considered subjective. And so you just were supposed to kind of keep it to yourself. Now, I'd just like to say that, that it wasn't that faith or, or the truth of the word of God was disproved. It was just dismissed. And so as a generation, we kind of 
ran away from our Heavenly Father. We ran away from home. Now we arrive at this post-world that you and I have, because even that has changed. To put it in the immortal words of Calvin and Hobbes, scientific progress went boink. (laughs) What happened? What happened to all the hope that we had? What happened to this, this grand society that we would build together? Well, what we found out was that the issue wasn't science and it wasn't advancement. It, it wasn't about economics. The real problems with society were rooted in a much more difficult place to get at. They were rooted in the lives and in the hearts and in the minds of people. It was people who were broken. It was people who destroyed one another. It was people who hurt one another. That was what wrecked things. And that was what broke people's hearts and broke their lives. And so now we live in this postmodern era. And technology has overpromised and underdelivered, and and the hope that that became unhinged and unpinned from that time created a vacuum, and and it gave way to people just saying, "Well, I guess I'll just have to do this myself," and so it gave way to to dramatic individualism, and and moral relativism where people just kind of began to choose and build their own spiritual life, their own set of truths, and their own set of beliefs. And they didn't always have to base it or build it on anything that was concrete or provable. And so people would now custom design their own personal truth, journey, morality, and even their own salvation. Anybody who would dare to claim that there was such a thing as universal truth or an absolute truth such as God is a creator of all, all mankind, or that, or that we've all sinned, or that we all need a savior named Jesus. These kinds of statements are viewed now as judgmental, as oppressive, as, as arrogant. Who are we to say that somebody else's belief system is wrong? Our system is just as good as your system. How many of you have heard these kind of conversations over and over again in conversation these days? Postmodern thinking, though, because it's built around so many individuals' ideas, is, is really very inconsistent. So postmodernism is a worldview that says there is no such thing as a worldview. Postmodernism is, it absolutely denies the existence of absolute truth. And so they make a rule that nobody's allowed to say that anything is true of everybody. And yet they've just made a rule that is supposed to be true for everybody and that's not where it ends we're also now conscripted to tolerate what anybody says you have to not only accept it but in our generation now you actually have to condone it and approve it whether you do or not and so in the name of freedom we're forced (laughs) to accept what everybody else says whether it's true or not and so the death of modern optimism has now given rise to a most postmodern pessimism. And we now live in a very skeptical, uncertain, and fragmented world. It's not all it was cracked up to be. Well, it's not only postmodern. I said it's a post-everything world. It's also post-authoritarian. And so people don't trust authority figures anymore. We don't trust governments. How many of you, when you looked at the American Uh, election a couple of years ago thought oh my goodness those poor people have to pick either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton (laughs) I don't know who I would you know I mean who would you vote for it's not like either of them are shining uh, you know uh, bastions of truth or or goodness 
And so, and so governments are considered now to be very partisan and very suspect. And, and when they have power, they tend to just ram things through. And if you live in Alberta, you kind of have that feeling maybe too a little bit. Anybody have that feeling that some stuff is kind of being rammed down our throats? We're not sure if they're governing for all of our good and listening to all of the people or whether there's an agenda that drives the decisions of a government. And so we've become skeptical and maybe even a little frustrated. Who would admit to being just a tad frustrated with the stuff that's coming down the pipe? And so it's not just that. I'm not so sure that we trust our news anymore either. Uh, News has become spin. And some people get a hard ride if you happen to be of the wrong political persuasion. And some people get a free ride if you happen to be politically correct. And nobody asks the hard questions. And nobody says, hold it. You can't say that. Where's the, where's the truth? Where's, where's the validity of that kind of a statement? Nobody asks. They don't require it. And so, so we don't trust news anymore. If you look in the States, people don't trust the justice system or the police anymore. And it's especially evident there where police are under open attack. People are, are shooting officers. And that's happening here. Be in, on, on my drive down from Grand Prairie, I drove through Marathorpe. How many of you remember what happened in Marathorpe? People don't respect and don't trust the law anymore. And people don't respect or expect that they'll get a fair judgment in a court system. And so all of these authority figures that used to be the stabilizing factors of of our culture and of our society, we've we've begun to to stop trusting. We're not sure about economics anymore. It seems like the rich and powerful get richer and more powerful. It seems like there are companies that are bigger than whole countries, economies. They're too big to fail. And so when they manage themselves into oblivion, what happens? You're in my tax dollars. Have to go and bail them out. And so we don't particularly like so much of what's going on around us. And, and, and here's the thing. We don't trust anymore. We're, we're not sure we trust who's really in control and why they're making decisions. We're also post-universal language. You see, from back in the day when everybody kind of agreed on a sort of a, a, a general biblical truth and, you know, that there's a God up in heaven or, it, you know, something like that and that, uh, and that, you know, we could pray and get help. Uh, now when you talk about spiritual truth, uh, we, don't, we don't even speak in the same language as many people anymore. Have you heard this nebulous term now? We don't talk about faith and Christianity. Now people talk about spirituality. And whatever that means to anybody individually. Uh, So we have to start by even redefining terms. Because there's no more universal language uh, that we can speak and realize we're starting from the same place. And talking about the same thing. And not only that, but this one's especially for us in the church here. We're also post-attractional. Back in the day, we used to hear a lot about seeker being seeker-sensitive. And what that meant was that we as Christians and we as churches would do our best to make sure that when a friend, a stranger came into the church, that they felt welcome, we'd buy them a coffee, you know, we'd sit and visit with them, and that they felt safe, they felt welcome. But the reality is that less than 15% of people who are on a spiritual journey and looking for spiritual truth will start with Christianity or come to a church Or engage a pastor. That's not where people are looking for spiritual answers anymore. Has anybody heard of this thing called the interweb? (laughs) There's all kinds of stuff. And and some of it is wild. 
that is available on the internet. And people seem to be willing to believe whatever they read. Does this sound like the world you and I live in? It's a post-everything world. And I have to say, it's a very skeptical world. And we live in a generation that is still asking all the same questions that humankind has always asked. And so, so here we are in this cultural whirlpool, you and I, with a timeless, uncompromising message of the biblical gospel, which is that God is the creator, he's the omnipotent, omnipresent one, and you are a sinner, or we all are sinners, and we all need Jesus Christ. May I, may I ask you a question? Could you have a more politically incorrect, unpopular message to deliver to, the, to this generation than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is a tough sell, isn't it? How many of you are, are relatively new to the kingdom of God, say the last five years or so? Do you remember what it was like out there and listening to Christians? I mean... You thought they were crazy, didn't you? I mean, seriously, how do you take these people seriously? They think they know everything. They think they're right all the time. They think they're better than everybody else. I mean, it's a tough sell out there. And yet, and yet, we know once we've come into this house, once we've discovered the power of the truth of God, the Bible explains almost everything that you see in the world around you. It explains the nature of man, explains where evil comes from, it explains the brokenness of people, it explains why people are so lost, it explains why people are constantly looking and searching but don't seem to be able to find anything, it explains world politics, it explains the direction the world is going. I mean, it's a phenomenal book of truth, even if the world has dismissed it. So we have to recognize that truth now is for us as believers that truth is everything. And even for a world that dismisses that truth can be known, they're still looking for it. And they're still looking for something that they can hang their life on and live their life that makes it mean something, that makes it of value, that says, I'm worth more than just the few years that I spend in this world. And Jesus agrees. When Jesus came, he said, I am, uh, I'm sorry, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know truth. And the truth gives you this great gift. It'll set you free. It'll set you free. Free from what? Free from hopelessness. Free from despair free from being lost, free from the brokenness of your soul, free from addictions. It is the power of God at work in the lives of people. And it sets us free mostly from ourselves, from being prisoners of our own will and our own brokenness. And so thank God. Now, Jesus also talks about the other side. He says in John eight forty four, you are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand for the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie. He speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. Everybody say father of lies. Now, I want you to put that in your memory bank because we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But let's go back to talking about Jesus. I thank God for this scripture verse in Hebrews 13, 8. It says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
You know, while the world and the generations and the philosophies change in the world and the culture changes around us, there's something that is not changing. There is something that is a bedrock. There is something that the anchor can hold to that will anchor your life. And his name is Jesus. And he's not changing the rules on us. He is the same. He'll always be the same. He'll always reach for you. He'll always love you. He'll always call you home. And so I'm so grateful for that. But armed with something so powerful as this eternal truth, how did we lose the high ground and the foundation of truth in the public discourse? More importantly, looking forward, how do we fight the uphill battle for the soul of the generation that we live in? Because I don't know about you, but I still have people out there in this world that I want to know have come to Jesus that are, are lost and broken, and I don't want to see them lost for an eternity. And so my heart is, is aching to reach out and to help and find them, which the last time I looked was the mission that God had given us. Well, it might not be as simple as just these debates about truth. At the turn of the New Testament, the world was very much like ours. Hard to believe it, but it was. Maybe not technologically, but really in its generation and in the thinking, it really was. Religions and cults, philosophies proliferated. They came from everywhere. They were rooted in multiple cultures that were being mixed all over the place because of the power and the overwhelming dominance of the Roman Empire. Trade and, and people began to travel all over the world from one culture to another. And they brought their gods and the Romans had their gods and the Greeks had their gods and they had their temples and they had their orgies and they had all of this stuff was going on. And it was a world where there was power and wealth and money and all of those things are things we see in the world today. People grasping for power and control. And so, so it was in the days of the New Testament. And where there was money and wealth, there was, of course, all kinds of pleasures that the broken man and the broken woman of the day could find pleasure or escape in. Even in the mix was Judaism. The Old, system, the old uh, Testament system and pattern passed down to Moses. And they were supposed to be the keeper of God's truth. But somehow it had all come unglued. And they had become an intolerant religious system that had no life in it. It had been 400 years without a word from God and of everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. And it was into this world, a world that sounds so much like our generation, doesn't it? How many of you think it sounds a lot like the same kind of world? That's what our world is like. But it's into this world that God intervenes. God intervenes. That he intervened is absolutely epic. And I can't help but have the words of John 3.16 ringing through my mind. For God so loves the world, even the lost, even the broken, even the rebellious, even those who promote everything against him. Yes, his love is so great. And still, all of these broken people in the world around us still bear the image of our wonderful creator, of our heavenly father. And so God looks at them and he still loves them. But it's not just that he intervened, but it's how he intervenes that is a special interest as we think about this tonight. In the most beautiful, in the most 
brilliant in the most supernatural, in the most mysterious way. God sends truth back to this generation. And he sends it in the form of his son. He sends it incarnate. How many of you are familiar with that Bible word carnal? It's usually used in a fairly negative context, isn't it? You know, the carnal man. What's he talking about? He's talking about the natural man, the fleshly man. You know, the, 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 the tangible you and me, who we are without and apart from God, just this natural being. But it says here that, that the truth and this, this brilliant plan of God is to take the, the truth and the concepts and the reality of God and to take words and put them into fleshly form so that people can interact with it and experience it and, and see it modeled before them in a way that they haven't seen it before. And so, of course, we read the passage that you see before you, Colossians 2, 9. For in him all the fullness of God, of deity, dwells in bodily form. Jesus says, I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. John repeats this in his gospel in John 1, chapter 14, when he reminds us that the word becomes flesh. What, what does that mean? What's the word? The word is incarnate. The word has been translated into human shape and form to be seen and viewed and experienced and interacted with. It's a spectacular thing, isn't it? Aren't you glad that Jesus has chosen to interact with us in personal ways? I mean, it's, it's, it's just the most compelling story and the most um, amazing uh, gift that, that God could possibly give us. And it says that when he came, he was full of grace and truth. How many of you think the order of those two things is important? Grace and then truth. If you turn them around, people often will stop listening. But once they figure out that there's grace and love and compassion in us, now they're willing to at least hear us out a bit. And then the truth has a chance to get into their hearts. You know, I don't know if you're like, if you're like me, but maybe you are. And sometimes, though we read the Bible and we come to church and, and we've learned some things about God, are there times when you feel like, like sometimes it's kind of going over your head or that you're missing it anyway? Or that you, you kind of get lazy with it and you're not really living as though these things are as dramatic and true as they are? If, if you are like me and you do that and you catch yourself doing that at times, I don't want you to feel too bad. And so if you have your Bible or an electronic device, turn with me to Mark chapter 1 and you're going to realize that even the people who Jesus chose to follow him were having trouble <laughs> rationalizing what they were seeing and experiencing when Jesus came. And so we begin reading in Mark 1.21 and it says, They went into Capernaum. So Jesus is now with his disciples. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I jumped ahead to the wrong text. So we should be on slide 17. Uh, in John 14, I got you in the wrong text. John 14. If you had known me, he was saying to his disciples, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him. And we're talking a lot about truth tonight, right? So now you know him, he's saying, and you have seen him. 
And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. I kind of think that Philip is one of those kind of mystical, you know, super spiritual guys. And and he's trying to say something profound here. And I'm going to paraphrase Jesus' response. But I think it maybe went something like this. (laughs) Seriously, Phil? (laughs) Seriously? That's what what you're saying to me? So how does Jesus respond to this statement? Jesus says to him, have I been with you all this time already? Have I been with you so long and you have not come to know me? Don't you know who you're looking at here? And then he says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Seriously, man, how can you say, show me the father? I'm standing right in front of you. This is what I've been telling you the whole time. This is what I've been showing you the whole time. I am God. I and the father are one. And so, so it's this amazing thing. But when people were meeting Jesus, even for the first time, when they, when they met him, they knew he was unique. And they knew he was special. Pastor Paul mentioned, when, when you speak to the wind and waves, people go, oh, 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 oh what just happened here? Oh, did the weather actually listen to him? Hey, you guys, the weather listened to him. And they must have been, blo- I mean, <laughs> Right? And so here, here we have this example. Now we're in Mark 1. And it says, They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And what was verse 22? How did the people react to him? They were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them with something that they weren't used to hearing. Authority. His words had power. And they could feel it. And they could hear it. They were engaging the truth of God. And so really cool. Now, if that wasn't enough, by God's holy design, there's a man in the service this day in the synagogue who is demon-possessed. How many of you believe that there's still demons? Oh, oh yes. If you don't, then, then the enemy's got you right where he wants you. He's got you blind and ignorant. He's going he's gonna to side ear hole you. That's a football expression. It means get hit from the side without you ever seeing it coming. And by the way, it really hurts. <laughs> but yeah, it's real. And we live in the same world with the same dynamics today. And so, so just then, this man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit cries out, what business do we have with each other? Have, and he's saying to Jesus, you know, whoa, leave us alone. It's not time yet. And they know what's going on. And Jesus simply says to him, be quiet and come out of him. And then the people, again, see this power and authority that the moment Jesus says this, this spirit is immediately trounced by the power of God. And it thrashes around a little bit, but that man is set free. And he gets up and he's in his right mind and everything's clean and he's good. And, and, and what's the reaction of people again? Oh, we thought he had authority before. Did you guys see that? And he even has the power to command unclean spirits. And now they're absolutely flipping out. This is awesome stuff. And so, and not only those who were there, but it says the news about this, this man begins to travel all over the province. And I can imagine that it did. And, and they didn't have internet either. This, but this spread like wildfire. And so in Jesus' day, 
even as he comes to the end of his ministry in life. Of course, it's a big world and a big society. But we hear the same philosophy of doubt, that there is truth that can be known, that there's such a thing that you can actually know what the truth is. And it, and it shows up in John chapter 18, when Jesus is in his trial with Pilate. And he says to Pilate, you say correctly that I'm a king for Uh, This I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. Why did he come into the world? What's the next line? To testify the truth, right? So here we have this beautiful picture again of, I've come to incarnate the truth for you. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate answers an answer that I'll bet you have heard many times. Meh, what's truth? Have you heard that? Or maybe you heard it like this. Well, good for you. That's your truth. Have you heard that one? That's your truth. Or I'm glad that's working for you, but I've got my own thing going on, right? And, and so, but that's the response we get. And so even in Jesus' day, just like today, it's not a world that God is unfamiliar with. He knows exactly what you're facing when you're out there in the world. And so in spite of this statement by Pilate, he does something which is really quite interesting and ironic. He goes out again and says to the Jews, I find no guilt in him. Now, realize what's happened. This is Jesus' trial. There have been people who have brought false charges against him. And they made all kinds of accusations. And he's doing this and he's doing that. Pilate meets the man. And all Jesus says in his defense is, I have come to speak the truth. I am who they say I am. I am a king. And Pilate, though he disparages that truth can be known goes out and testifies to everyone who's listening that I'm dismissing all of the lies of everybody else and I just met a man who is truthful. He is the truth. He's the real deal. Now, we see something happen here that's a tragedy that we still see happening in our day. What was truthful was not necessarily politically expedient for Pilate in that day. And so there was tremendous political pressure being brought against him. And what he was saying was not going to be politically correct. And it was not going to be good for the people and the situation. And so even though he knows that there is no guilt in him, Pilate lets him be crucified by the Jews. Can you imagine that after Pilate's own testimony and after they've put Jesus in the tomb, imagine what Pilate was thinking a few days later, when he hears the news that the tomb is empty. And when his wife reminds him, I told you to have nothing to do with that man. Men, just a, just a, a brief side track here. <laughs> Listen to your wives. <laughs> Pilate's wife understood. There was something. But what does this tell us? When Jesus came to this world, everyone who met him knew he was different, knew he was unique, and knew he was something they had never seen before. And, and this truth is, is truth God's way. It's undeniable when God begins to reveal the truth to us. You can't shake it. You can say no, but inside your heart says yes. How many of you knew the truth before you gave in to Jesus? <laughs> How many of you were stubborn? proud, too, too cocky, too arrogant. And, and you were on record as saying, I don't believe in that stuff. 
and yet inside you already knew the truth. That's the world we live in. So now, I think in our Greek thinking Gentile culture of today, that means for us knowing for many people is just an intellectual exercise. It's it's just about having information. But if we think that having information or truth is an end in itself, we are sorely mistaken. And worse yet, we are depriving truth of its most vibrant forms and shapes. You see, because truth isn't just meant to be known. It's meant to be experienced and lived. The truth has to come to life. The, the, the words, the seeds, the ideas have to produce an outcome in hearts, in behaviors, in priorities, in language, in concepts that we embrace. And so you and I today, what, when we look at, back at what God did in his generation and we look at the need in our own, how, how is God going to help us reach? How is God going to help us help a so familiar world to come to know him? If you hear nothing else I say today, hear this, that God hasn't changed his tactics one bit. God is still incarnating the truth into this post-everything world, but he's doing it just a little different. He's doing it through you and me. He's doing it through you and me. We are, in the Bible, called the body of Christ. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus. And so the word of God is rich with this image. And I just want this to penetrate into your spirit tonight. And if you don't know Jesus, this is what he has in store for you. This is what he wants with you. This depth of relationship. Listen to Colossians 1, 25 to 28. Uh, Paul is saying of, of this church, of this body of Christ, I was made a minister. He goes on to say of this mystery, which was hidden for all these generations that is now being manifested or shown to you that God wants to make known to this generation of Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of truth, the hope of redemption, the hope of salvation, the hope of a generation. Galatians 2.20, we read, it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. You see, this is the nature of Christianity. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. You are new. Look at the person beside you. Look him up and down. Are you convinced? <laughs> Tell him, ah, uh, you know, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. You know, I'm not so sure. Sometimes I see God things in you and sometimes I see other things. Well, welcome to a very big club. 2 Corinthians, uh, two, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 2 to 4, Paul writes, You are a letter, a letter of Christ, 
not written on pieces of paper, not projected on screens, not just written in in a Bible, but projected on the living tissue of human hearts, of your life and your personality. You have become the canvas of God's illustration of the truth, his truth to this world. And Jesus said, you'll be able to look at at my servants and you'll know who they are. You'll know who they are. You'll know them by their fruit. You'll know them by what you see and experience when you meet them. But in this post-modern, post-authoritarian, post-universal language, post-attractional, post-trust world, how do we get through? How do, how do we get into the hearts and the minds of, of the people we care about? If I had to venture a guess, I would say it's the same way that the Father sent the Son. And the same way that the Son sent the first generation of the church. He said, go to them. <laughs> go to them. And so if, if, if 85% of Red Deer doesn't know Jesus and they're not going to come here, to hear a sermon like this and to sit with us in this room, then how are we going to bridge the gap? Well, God has a plan for that too. It's beautiful. He says we're going to show them. So, so let's, let's put up a slide. Now here again, I just, I just want to say, this is kind of a picture of my experience of showing the world Jesus. <laughs> you know, I'm walking along and I, I think I've got something brilliant to say and I'm going to do my best. And I'm going to love them and everything. And then I trip over something I said. I fall on my face. I make a mistake. I, I mess it up. I hurt somebody's feelings. Who, who, here, is, who here is a little like me? <laughs> I, 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 I'm pretty sure that I blow it more than I get it right. And I'm a pastor. I mean, goodness sakes. And people remind me, hey, you're a pastor. Shouldn't you be nicer than that? Shouldn't you behave better than that? You know, you, you how does a pastor behave like that in a hockey game? You know, <laughs> sorry, I'm competitive. That's, a, that's my excuse. I'm competitive. Uh, but, but after I trip over my face and I fall over my stick and I trip over my words, I jump up and go, <laughs> Ta-da, here I am. Here I am. Uh, I love the scripture verse that says, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, and maybe we could transform that a little bit, such as I am, God, I'm willing to give to the people around me in my life. And I'm not going to get it right. And one of the beautiful pictures of, of Christians is, is, I'm sorry I offended you, brother. Would you forgive me? I really blew it. I got it wrong. How wonderful is it to hear people who everyone says, you guys are so arrogant, to see us humble ourselves and say, I'm sorry, I, I, I missed it there. I blew it. I should have given you a hand and I walked right by or, or I, I missed the chance. I should have offered to help you move. I, I'm sorry, I was busy. I didn't even occur to me till later. And, and we go back and we apologize. Now, now people are going, oh, yeah, you should have helped me move, right? I had a lot of heavy stuff. I could have used a guy who could, you know, do something. So what, what is it that we're going to show them and how are we going to do this? Well, I'd like to say that if we're going to bridge the gap and if we're going to get people to eventually come and enjoy being together in a community as wonderful as Living Stones Church is 
And I, and I just have to say, I just love this church. Uh, I, this, this always feels like coming home to me, a lot because of Paul and Patty, but I actually know a number of, of you as well and know a number of folks here. But because I've watched this church and its ministry grow, I've always felt at home here. We visited so many times. But how, how, are, how are you going to do this? I'd like to say, go to their world. Don't go with your truth and your experience, but go to hear their world. What's their life like? What are the challenges that they're facing? Ask them about their world. Care. You know, the Bible doesn't just say act loving. It says be genuinely loving. Really be concerned about what's going on in the lives of your friends. There are people that are all around you in your life. God has strategically placed you in this world and in a unique uh, group of environments that nobody else lives in. And so there are people around you in school, at work, uh, the people you do business with, uh, wherever it is you go, the people you socialize with. One of the great ways that I got to know people in our community was I became the chaplain of our junior A hockey team. And I took two boys through, through all the levels of competitive hockey. We met so many people because, of course, there's different groups of parents and kids every year. Get involved in coaching. Get involved in school clubs. Love their kids. Care about their, them. Talk to your neighbors. Shovel their walk. Do something to let them know that their life matters to you. When, when you see them getting out of a car with a cast on, offer to help them for the next several weeks. Find a way to just show the love of God, to incarnate the compassion, the community, the love of Jesus into their life. They, now, now, This is not going to be particularly easy. I just want you to know. Because sometimes when you do nice things for people, they have this look. Do you know this look? What does that look mean? What are you doing and what do you want? Why are you being nice to me? Now, that's a sad commentary on a generation. What does it tell us? We live in a post-everything world. And they're skeptical and they're cynical and they don't trust. And so if somebody doesn't receive your good deed with gratitude, give them a break. (laughs) Just be persistent. Just keep being kind. Because sooner or later, the message starts to get through. I, I love a scripture that we find in Psalm 34. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't, isn't that, you don't want to know what's beautiful about this for me? That tasting and seeing are both experiential things. It doesn't say hear about the goodness of God. It says taste and see. God is inviting people to experience him. Now in the New Testament, Jesus picks this up. And in Matthew 5, he begins to teach. And he says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Look how that measures up with Psalm 34. Salt has a taste and light is meant to be seen so jesus says i've sent you out i've i've scattered you around red deer and 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 the environment here and i've i've got my people spread throughout this community so that the people of red deer can taste and see through you that the lord is good isn't that powerful and all we have to do well well what are the things that we want to show them 
Well, it's, it, they're pretty simple. If you look in the scriptures, the Bible says in, in uh, where am I? I turned the page. Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. We should be happy. Peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. There's a good one for hockey players and other competitive type of people, uh, business people. Um, uh, gentleness, faithfulness. Are, are you faithful in your work? Are you, are you faithful at your job? Are you a, a trustworthy employee? Are you a trustworthy friend and neighbor? Um, Psalm 102 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Those are wonderful patterns to develop in your dealings with all the people that you meet. And Jesus tells us that by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so loving each other and loving them and letting them become a part of this wonderful church, family, and community. I think it's interesting that in Christianity, you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus in order to know the truth. So again, it it requires this experience. But there's a volunteering of ourselves if we're going to reach this cynical world. And it's going to take a concerted effort on our part but we just have to love them the best we know how and with whatever gifts and talents that we have. Some of you are servants. Some of you are encouragers. Some of you are connectors. And some of you are great at remembering names and faces. We all do different things, but let's all do what we do so that the the message of Christ gets through. The more fragmented the world becomes, the more people crave a place to belong. The more, the more they look for a sense of identity of, of what this life is really about. Now, do you remember I asked you to put something in your memory bank just for a moment? I asked you to remember that when Jesus said, I'm the truth, that he said that there's a father of lies. It's not going to be as simple as just being nice to people. Because there are some, there's something going on that we have to address as the church. And we find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And it says there, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? In, the, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They're not just being stubborn. They're not just being blockheaded or prideful. There is actually a spiritual veil that doesn't allow the truth to settle in. Have you ever had an aha moment when you just, oh, I get it. Maybe it's a joke or, or you figured something out. Oh, I, I know what to do now. They don't get to have that aha moment because there's a shroud of darkness that doesn't allow the light in. Now, I'm thankful for something else God has given us besides the life of Jesus. And that is the same authority that he used in the temple that we talked about earlier. He's given you and I authority too. And it says that we can tread on serpents and scorpions and we have power over all of the works of the devil. And so we can pray that that blindness will be torn away so that people have a fair chance to see the truth without the interference of of the demonic, without the interference of the lies. And so it's not just just this spiritual curtain, but, but there are people who are helping And so we read in in verses like Titus chapter 1 that there are people who are rebellious men and empty talkers. 
And so they, they speak lies. There's lots of people, and, and, and maybe I could uh, draw on your experience one more time. And in music and in media and in watching TV and movies, how many of you get sick and tired of the way the church and Christians are portrayed? Oh, I just hate the caricatures. They, they, they are telling all kinds of lies and stories. But the Bible says that there are people who know the truth but deny it, refuse to acknowledge it. And instead, they will lie to people about who God is and who, who Christians are. And so it says in Romans chapter 1, there are men who will actually suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Even though they know it's true, they'll lie about who God is and who, who you are and who the church is. And so there's going to be a tremendous battle. But if we wage the spiritual battle first, then we have a chance to win the war for the soul of the people. They need a chance to experience the truth. And you and I need to be the first ones to experience the truth that we want to export. You can't export what you don't have. And so when you read the Bible, I want to encourage you. When you read something that says this is the way Christian life should be, and you look at your life and you go, yeah, no. <laughs> no, I'm not there yet. Then I hope it cultivates you a tremendous hunger to experience that truth for yourself. To press in and push in and go, okay, God, if you said I get to have that, then I want that. So, so we start looking and we start talking to people and we study it in the scriptures and we go to Bible study and we have people pray for us and, and, and we, we embrace and we experience the truth for ourselves. And then we take that truth and we share it with the people around us. And so telling the truth was, was never enough. It was always meant to be shown and lived and experienced Let's go back to the beginning of our conversation today. Can I ask you, are you truth incarnated in this generation? Are you a living example that people could look at and go, I I think I'm learning some things about God because I know him. (laughs) I've met him. He's really nice. He he was kind to me when others weren't. Or or they were great neighbors. They came over with food or whatever. These, These gestures of kindness. Is your faith alive? Is the truth alive in your heart? Is there a passion in you? I want to conclude by, by asking you to do something. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to help you make a commitment. I'd like you to think of five people who are people in your life, not just who need to know Jesus, but people that you are willing over the next little while to ask God to open doors to begin to build a relationship with to begin to learn about their life. Ask them about their situations. Ask them how you can help and encourage them. And, and I just wonder, if you could find a piece of paper, would you just begin to write down those names as I continue just to wrap things up for us here tonight? Who are the people that you feel God is calling you to build a bridge of relationship to? It might be a neighbor or a friend or somebody you know in the hospital or, or a, a friend of one of your kids. I don't know who it might be. But who are the people that you feel are within your reach that you're willing to engage over the next while? The next thing we're going to do is I'm going to ask you if you'll commit to praying for God to open opportunities for you to show them the love of God and show them what he's like and to maybe do whatever you can, whatever opportunity comes your way to perform an act of service of some kind. And then before you leave tonight, I'd like you as just a a statement of faith and of intercession to bring your list down and lay it right here on this altar before the Lord. 
and say, God, these are the people I'm praying for. Will you begin to go to work in their life and let God read the words that you wrote. Let God read the names of the people in your life that you have a chance to show the love of God to. I just need to tell you one more story. And it was about a beautiful little 20-something-year-old girl that I had a chance to baptize just a few months ago. And, and I, I didn't meet her before. I, she had come to the church, but I, I only met her the day I baptized her. But we had a baptismal service, and my, one of my associates, Pastor Steve, proached, uh, preached about baptism and invited her down invited anyone who had never been baptized yet but who loved Jesus to come down and enter the waters of baptism. Well, we had felt that God wanted to do something and the Holy Spirit had told me, Glenn, grab some extra towels and some stuff and take with you to the church today. And so I did. And here she came. We grabbed a choir gown for her. We dressed her in one of the choir gowns and gave her, so she had dry clothes when she got out because it was like minus 47 or something like that that morning. It was a miserable day. But here she was. And, and so... But as she gets into the baptismal tank, she begins to tell us the story of how she came to know Jesus. She had been raised in a pagan home. She was raised and taught to believe that the Norse gods were the ones that her parents followed and worshipped. And so, and so that was what... And she was taught that the church was a, a, a place full of hypocrites and that they were clicky and snobby and they didn't really care about you. And once you got there, all they were going to try to do was get all your money. How many of you have heard some of that stuff before or feared that at least anyway? Yeah, so, you know, nothing we haven't heard before. So this was her view. But somehow the things she was being taught about spiritual life and truth didn't ring true in, in her heart. And so she began looking other places. She began to explore uh, uh, other world religions. And she began to look on, on in the internet. And, and she tried and explored and experimented with all kinds of stuff and, and, and pseudo-Christian cults and, and stuff. But none of, them, none of them were answering the deep questions and the deep hunger of her soul. Of course, we know now that the Holy Spirit is at work in her, right? And, and, and he won't let her settle for less than the right answer. So he, he, she just keeps looking. But in, in, her, in her despair, as she's kind of losing idea of where to look, she, she begins to look then to, to things like the drug scene and, and, and the party scene. And, and she just about tears her life apart. And, but even as a 22, 23-year-old, she's looking at this life and she's going, this is a dead end. I don't care what the movies and the commercials say. This life is going nowhere. Uh, it's a dead end. It's a, it's a lie. It, it's not a life filled with happiness and joy. It's a life of addiction. And, and so, so life was a mess. But there were some really cool young adults in our church. And, and, and honestly, the guy who brought her to her first young adults event, it wasn't at the church. She was scared to death of the church building, you know, which is, which is pretty normal for a lot of people in our, in our community. They're scared of what goes on here. They don't know. And so they've got all kinds of horror stories in their minds and all that propaganda of the enemy. And so she wasn't going to come to church, but she would go and hang out with them. And they'd go out for lunch afterwards and, and they'd do things. And they, she went to young adults and she began to experience something in her heart. Her heart began to warm. And she couldn't figure out what it was about these people, but she liked them. And, and hope began to arise in her soul, in her spirit. 
And after a while of kind of hanging out with the young adults, she finally got brave enough to come to church one Sunday morning. And she was scared spitless. She said, I was so scared. But I, I came in and, and she was like clinging to the arm of, of the guy who brought her. And, and, uh, but she came into a church service where we had four missions presentations as our Sunday morning message. And in these four presentations, she heard about groups going to Cuba and, and teaching them how to plant community gardens and to clean up their beaches. And, and because they're in Cuba, in communist Cuba, they just didn't learn how to take care of anything. It was, it was just a mess. And so for years, they had been going in and building relationships. So she heard about these Christian people from Canada going in, and they hadn't even had the chance to share the gospel with him yet, but they were going back year after year. And she began to sob and cry. And then she heard about Haiti, sending a team of 25 young people down to minister to kids and, and orphans and, and build homes for people because their homes had been destroyed in the storms. And she began to cry even harder. Then she heard about Uganda, where some folks in our church uh, uh, knew what was happening there, that a war-torn civil war had destroyed infrastructure, and many people had been killed. And here was Grandma Kavina, Mama Kavina, who had eight or ten orphan kids from the community, but they had no place to live and there was no school. So we went and built them a school and a home and and went and taught them agricultural practices so they could begin to feed themselves and educate them. And, And now she's just, she's crying and crying and crying. She hears one more mission. And at the end of the service, she goes, this is nothing like I had, I was told. That's not what they told me Christianity was about. That's not what they told me Jesus was about. And she gives her life to Jesus in her first Sunday at church. And two months later, she comes down and tells us the story about how truth had become incarnate through a group of young adults who just took time to love her. And when she came to church, she saw people who were caring for others and reaching out to others. And that was what broke her heart. And she is gloriously saved and she's doing so good. I just want to report, uh, this is what God is doing. When the truth comes to life in front of their eyes, they will realize that they're meeting Jesus. And that's the power of Jesus in you. That's the hope for this community. That's the hope for the people around you. Can we bow our heads and pray? I don't know if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but if you are here tonight and, and maybe you've recognized the truth, but you've just never committed to him and you'd like to do that tonight, would you just raise your hand so I can see it? Everyone's head is bowed. This is a private moment between you and God. But if you're here tonight and you want to make that commitment, I want to give you that chance. Is there anyone? If not, how many of you just feel like the Spirit of God is inspiring you and, and giving you a handle on how to reach into the world, perhaps, tonight? And, and some people who are in your heart and on your mind. And, but you, you want a fresh anointing of the Spirit, a, a fresh courage to be able to go out and, and make a difference in, in this community. If that's you and you want me to pray for you, would you just raise your hand? I just want to pray for an anointing of the Spirit of God to settle on you, to be a difference maker in this city. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for hands raised all over the sanctuary, people who have faces and names in their minds and their heart. And Jesus, you are in these people. And you, you are the truth that the world needs to see through their lives. 
And so I pray tonight in the name of Jesus that you would settle on us with a fresh anointing and a fresh infilling of your spirit to show us and give us eyes to see where you're at work so that we can bring many into the precious kingdom of God. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the lighthouse that it is. I thank you for the salt and light that's going to leave from this place this week. And I pray that you would make us a great impact in this community. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen.